This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Under normal circumstances, this podcast is recorded at Books and Books, my bookstore of close to 40 years. My guests usually join me in our cafe for lunch, an espresso, or maybe even both. But just like almost every bookstore everywhere, Books and Books is closed. We're only open online, and I, probably just like you, am sheltering in place. So I'm now at home. What you're saying is no lunch. No lunch, Mark. I'm really sorry. (laughs) So I'm now at home recording remotely, and instead of clinking glasses or loud chewing, you might hear one of my dogs or the voices of my wife or my daughter who came to stay with us from New York City. We got her out just in time. This heartbreaking virus will never stifle the literary life, though, as I know so many of you are reading, listening to books, or taking advantage of all the online literary offerings that have blossomed. So onward we go. My first guest in this series of podcasts, kind of loosely calling Coping with the Virus, is the brilliant, prolific, historian, environmentalist, and someone who writes on fishing, politics, and food, and just about everything else, the great Mark Kurlansky. Mark, welcome to The Literary Life. Nice to see you, Mitchell. Yeah, I know. We're, we're actually looking at each other because we're recording this as a podcast, but we're doing it on Zoom so that Mark and I can see each other, because if truth be told, we're also old friends who haven't seen each other in a while. Um, but the, the, I always love to connect with Mark, but the fact that he's written yet another book, how many is it now? You can't even keep track. His 33rd book, which is called Salmon, A Fish, the Earth, and the History of Their Common Fate, uh, which is a beautifully done book by Patagonia. And it's got photographs and, and drawings and pictures, and it's kind of an amazing history of the fish. In fact, this is what Bill McKibben says about it. If there was ever a totem species for the planet, it's the noble salmon. Back and forth between ocean and stream, between salt and fresh water, these creatures have nurtured our imagination as surely as our bodies. This book does them justice. Mark, how come you wrote about the salmon? Well, you know, in 1997, I wrote a book about cod. And the book came out uh, just about as the northern stock was failing on the uh, Grand Banks. And um, it was when people, the general public, started talking about problems of fishery management and overfishing. Fishermen actually had been talking about it. You know, when I was in the 60s working on commercial boats, fishermen were talking about it. But 1997 was when the general public started thinking about it. And they have stayed focused on this. But 
in, in following uh, uh, various fisheries, it has become clear to me that uh, overfishing is really almost the least of our problems. I mean, you know, if you had a fishery that didn't have any problems but overfishing, that would be so wonderfully simple. Um, the, the problem is, is, is much more complicated and much more serious. And I thought that salmon was the best way to illustrate that because being an anadromous fish, a fish that lives in uh, freshwater rivers and in the ocean, uh, it is hit by about everything that we're doing wrong in the planet. Right. And, and you actually call it the most important environmental writing that you've done, and you've done a lot of it. Yeah, I think so. What is the metaphor? What is the, what, how does the salmon show what we've done wrong? And what have we done wrong? I mean, I guess we know what we've done wrong. We're in the middle of some environmental crisis right now. Well, you know, if, if, if you just, if you look at the salmon, what is the problem of the salmon? It's um, deforestation and the building of dams and bad agricultural, pro uh, bad agricultural practices and um, the uh, pollution of water and uh, the use of pesticides and, you know, just about everything that we're doing. So, you know, if, if you want to save salmon, all you really have to do is save the planet. Which is really interesting because, I mean, the way you describe it, it sounds like a very dire kind of a book, which it is in many ways. It's a warning, but at the same time, it's a celebration as, as well, right? I mean, it's a celebration of the fish. Yeah, I mean, a, a salmon is one of the most extraordinary animals. It's you know we have a we have a preference for mammals because we're mammals, <laughs> but uh, uh, salmon is just absolutely one of the most extraordinary animals. I mean, a salmon can jump eleven feet in the air, which you know pound for pound would be like a human being jumping fifty, and it it can accelerate faster than an automobile. And it, uh, you know, it, it finds the river of its birth from thousands of miles away at sea. And not only does it find the river, but then it does this impossible task of swimming against the current. And some of these rivers uh, have incredibly strong currents. They just put their head into it a centimeter at a time. They leap over uh, waterfalls, sometimes over dams when they can uh, to get to the exact place where they were born. Um, and, and nothing stops them. I mean, I've seen salmon try to jump a fall and not quite make it, and they fall back on the rocks, and they just kind of shake it off and try again. Uh, there's absolutely nothing that will stop a salmon from getting to its uh, spawning ground. Um, and, and the way you describe it, uh, not only just the way you just describe it, but the way you describe it in the book, it's breathtaking in so many ways. It, it, it is. And uh, salmon, once it enters the river, it no longer eats. And, you know, this is nature working things out because at sea, salmon eat an enormous amount of food and they grow 95% of their size while they're out at sea. If they kept eating like that in the river, they would clean out the river. So they just stop eating when they get into the river. And... Uh, and live off of the uh, fat and energy they've stored up from the sea. And they, you know, this, this 
swimming upstream and leaping over falls. And they, they change, they completely change their look and become, it varies from species to species, but they become bright red, they grow humps, they grow hook noses, all these very strange things that troubled Darwin because Darwin believed that nature doesn't do things on whims. Everything nature does has a reason. What is the reason for this? He, always, he also wondered why peacocks have such elaborate tail feathers and why certain beetles have antlers that they don't use. And what he eventually came to realize is that the male of the species does these things to attract the female. And, you know, so a, a, a sockeye salmon in this bright red color and misshapen head and buck teeth and everything, it's, it's like, you know, it's, a, it's, it's like this guy in this gaudy plaid suit. And you say, oh, man, why are you dressed like that? And he says, the girls really like it. Only they do. <laughs> a wild and crazy guy, right? <laughs> Saturday Night Live. That's the salmon, right? Um, but it takes an enormous amount of energy to do this transformation. And... You know, when they, when they get to the spawning ground, the act of spawning uses the last of the energy they have. Their flesh is now white because they force all the pigment out to get that red color of the skin. And they have nothing left and they just roll over and die. They've, well, there's different salmon. To begin with, there's two genera. There's the Atlantic and the Pacific. And... Uh, Pacific, although they're in trouble, are doing much better than Atlantic. It's estimated that there's only about a million and a half Atlantic salmon left. A million and a half. And you think about uh, the sockeye run every year in Bristol Bay, Alaska, is about 60 million. And there's only a million and a half Atlantic. Atlantic are in serious trouble. They're no longer, for the most part, they're no longer commercially fished. But um, they're still uh, diminishing. Uh, I've, I've talked to people all over the Atlantic and Norway and Scotland and uh, Ireland and everywhere uh, in Maine. You know, they say the same thing that, um, you know, the fish go out to sea and not as many make it back. Right. What's going on is climate change. What's going on is that carbon, carbon dioxide loves water. So about a third of the carbon dioxide that's produced on land ends up in the ocean, where it, uh, it stymies, havoc. Yeah, well, it stymies the, 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 the hydrogen level of the water, which uh, reduces the ability to grow things. Uh, so zooplankton and small fish like capelin that cod and salmon depend on are... Uh, they're no longer, uh, they're not getting enough to eat uh, because these, these fish are smaller, the zooplankton isn't as nourishing. And so what is happening is that um, the ocean is losing its carrying capacity. It's losing its ability to feed the animals that live in it. This is the scariest thing I've ever learned. Mm. Uh, it, it, you know, if the oceans can no longer feed the fish that are in it, we're sunk. Yeah. Well, you know, I just read, and, and maybe you can tell me if this is this for the same reason, that the Great Barrier Reef is finally almost all bleached uh, because of too much carbon dioxide in the water as well. Is that very similar in a sense? Well, um, uh, one of the things that happens with carbon dioxide is that... Uh, you know, in addition to zooplankton and capelin, uh, coral mm -hmm. has the ability to grow. 
Right. right. Uh, and uh, they, they die off and they bleach out. And uh, uh, this will kill what's left of coral reefs. You dedicate the book to somebody that I'd never heard of before. Maybe you can talk a little about Ori uh, Vic Fusen. Yeah. Talk about him a little bit. A, a remarkable man, an Icelander, uh, the son of commercial uh, herring fishermen, um, who dedicated his life to uh, saving the Atlantic salmon. You know, this is like if he were if he were saving lions or mountain gorillas, you would have heard of it. But uh, he's saving Atlantic salmon, and he just, he did this by uh, he was like a model for what environmentalists should be. He knew how to talk to people. So he'd go up to these fishermen, and he wouldn't say, you got to stop fishing. He'd, he'd ask them about their fishery. He'd ask them about their gear and their work, because he was interested in those things, because he had a commercial fishing background. And, and then at some point, he would say, how much money do you want to stop? And he would raise money. He was a very good fundraiser, and, and he'd raise money to uh, have these funds to stop uh, commercial fishing, and he's the reason why there's almost no commercial fishing in the uh, uh, Atlantic salmon. Wow. But, you know, it's, I, I, I wish people could just, I wish all environmentalists could spend a day with this guy and see how it's done, you know, how you talk to people, how you uh, get people on your side rather than attacking them. I, I emailed him, I was planning to go to Iceland, we were gonna go fishing together. And he's, I, I said, so, you know, I'll see you in, I think it was a few weeks. And he said, I hope so. And I thought, what does that mean? And he, he had cancer, which I didn't realize. And he, uh, he died. So that's another aspect of Mark that many of you may not know. Mark is an amazingly accomplished fisherman as well. And actually, I think you told me a story, if you can tell it, about how you ended up working with Patagonia. Once you, uh, can you, can you tell that story about? Yeah, well, this is, this is how I ended up. But, you know, we were talking about doing the book, and there were a lot of negotiations. It was going on for a long time because Patagonia didn't really understand how to put together a book contract in the normal way that other commercial publishers do. So it took some coaxing and stuff, and I thought we were just about there. And suddenly I was told that Ivan Chinar, who's the founder, um wanted to go fishing with me. He invited me out to uh, uh, the Snake River in Wyoming in view of the Grand Tetons, an absolutely gorgeous place. And, you know, I joked to my agent. I said, this is the test, you know. If I don't do well, then we'll buy the book. <laughs> I, I went out there, but I was just joking, you know. But I, I did. I caught a lot of cutthroat trout. <laughs> and, and they actually called my agent and said, Mark's doing very well. He's caught a lot of cutthroat. <laughs> Here's the book contract. <laughs> That's great. That is fantastic. You are in place. You are sheltering in place, right? You live in New York City. I live in New York City. Tell us a little bit about what your life is like. I haven't left this block of 86th Street <laughs> in, I don't know, many weeks. I do. Uh, I have an office across the street from my home. And uh, my wife gets nervous about me going out to go back and forth a lot. So I, I go to my office and I stay here. I sleep here, you know, three or four days. And then I go back to my home for three or four days. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, that's, that's what the, the life is now. Um, uh, and my daughter is, uh, you know, her school is closed down. And 
she's in her room. <laughs> and uh, um, I, I've discovered that dogs do not like social distancing. Cats <laughs> think it's very cool. <laughs> that's probably that's very very true. How strange is it to be in New York right now with what's is, going on? It is very strange. There is nobody out there. I don't see anybody on the street. Um, but there's this wonderful thing, Mitchell. Uh, at seven o'clock every night, uh, people shout out their windows and cheer the health workers. And at first, I didn't understand this because I'd hear this huge crowd and I'd look out my window and there'd be nobody out there. They're all shouting from their windows. But it's, you know, it's New York at its best. They're just cheering these people. That is great. And, and given, your, <clears throat> given your background, what do you make of this pandemic? What do you make of, of the COVID virus? What, what is your take on it? Well, look, um, you know, scientists who study climate change have been wondering for some time if this would lead to epidemics um, and what this means for viruses. One thing that we do know is that uh, viruses uh, have trouble with warm weather. And, but, you know, when they um, invade human beings, that's pretty warm too. It's, you know, 98, 99 degrees, hopefully. And, um, uh, you know, it's the old natural selection. The weather is getting warmer, and so viruses are facing a lot more heat. And what that means is that the viruses that are surviving are much more adaptable to human heat. Mm. Um, that, that much we know. Interesting. So they're, they're, are they, they're searching out hosts in a sense. Yes. The virus is searching out a host. Yeah, but you know, I, I, I've been thinking, Mitchell, about this whole thing. Uh, you know, the way, the way people are just doing what they have to do and, and, you know, the hell with the economy, we just have to do what we have to do. And I think, why have we failed to get that message across about climate change? Because climate change is actually going to be a lot tougher than this. And uh, why can't we get people mobilized in the same way? And maybe, maybe this will teach people. Maybe something. this will do it. I think drawing the connection between—you know—it's really brilliant to draw the connection between this and climate change. As quickly, it's as if a, a switch was flipped very, very quickly, which altered all of our lives. That I guess people don't see climate change that way—that one day they will wake up and all of a sudden have to alter their life. But right. knowing that this and they they probably would happen. They should also remember that, you know, I mean, Donald Trump, the great climate change denier, also tried to deny the pandemic. Oh, absolutely. In very much the same way. It's not a coincidence. Right, right. Well, I, I think, you know, Mark, that could be a terrific article. I mean, that what you just said should be something that should be connected in a very profound way. And uh, that was one reason why I was excited about talking to you today because I knew that you would make that connection. Um, because I think the disruption in all of our lives due to this virus is probably peanuts compared to what would happen with an incredible, irreversible climate change. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're, we're talking about our, our, our food supply banishing, the natural order deconstructing. Uh, uh, we're already seeing incredibly violent uh, 
um, climate events. Um, uh, it, it's going to be absolutely cataclysmic if we don't do something. Well, you know, as as you know, and most everyone listening knows, I'm I'm in Miami, and and they're they're expecting a really really tough hurricane season this year, because the Gulf has apparently warmed up so much, so as the the Atlantic is warming, and that usually causes pretty violent hurricanes. Um, yeah. Well, the last uh, few seasons have been pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. So are you doing a lot of reading uh, now that you're sort of hunkered down or are you working on your next book? Yes, I am working on my next book for you, which actually my book after next, because I finished my next book. What, <laughs> my is, next, what my, is your next book? My next book is about fly fishing, sort of the history of it and what it's all about and why uh, people like me do such a silly thing. Um, is, and, that, is that for Patagonia as well? No, for Bloomsbury. Bloomsbury, okay. And then, as you know, the book after that, which is for books and books, is called uh, The Importance of Not Being Earnest. And it's about how Ernest Hemingway, even though he's dead, has followed me everywhere all of my life. <laughs> you know, it's just by coincidence I've spent time a lot of time, in, in, I lived in Paris for 10 years, and I've been writing about Basque Country for 40 years, and been writing about Cuba for almost as long, and spend time every year in, in Idaho. In fact, I would have been there now fishing the Bigwood River if this hadn't happened. Right. Um, and these are all Hemingway places, and so I'm surrounded by Hemingway nuts, and it's a weird world. And, uh, you know, and I think when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a writer as long as I can remember. And, and when I was a kid, the two writers that I most admired were Ernest Hemingway and Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And, you know, Ernest Hemingway, uh, who everybody is obsessed with, and I guess I am too because he's in my face all the time, you know, he died at 62. Lawrence Ferlinghetti is a hundred and just came out with a book that is as you know fun and original as books are. I think he just had his hundred and one hundred and first birthday. Oh, has he got to hundred and one? Yeah, I think he's hundred and one now. It's pretty amazing, isn't well, it? Well, he, he's my hero. <laughs> I know. You know, he was a publisher and a bookseller. If only, if only that was transferable to all booksellers and publishers, it would be longevity <laughs> like that. Tell us. You know, during this time of the virus, what kind of books or what would you recommend for readers to read? Give well, us a book recommendation. One book that I have recently read that I would recommend to everybody is a book by Elizabeth Bowen. Remember Elizabeth Bowen? She's kind of forgotten. Irish writer wrote a wonderful book called The House in Paris and some other books. Uh, great writer. And she wrote a book uh, during World War II she was living in London, and she wrote a collection of short stories called The Ivy Clings to the Steps and Other Stories. And this book is about how constricted and claustrophobic life was in England during the war for civilians. And you read this book at this particular time, and you just really relate to it. That's perfect. That's a perfect recommendation. That's great. Elizabeth Bowen was... When I was a young bookseller, they started this series called the Virago series, and Elizabeth Bowen was um, one of the most popular authors that we had. Then, really? Yeah, people weren't reading her as much, and now they've begun 
to start reading her again. And they will on your recommendation, I'm sure. Well, she's a great writer. You know, great writers. And I mean, Hemingway is one of them. You know, great writers, you pick them up and you start reading them and their voice just pulls you in. You are seduced from the first paragraph. Isn't that, isn't that a wonderful thing? Um, Mark's new book uh, is called Salmon, uh, A Fish, the Earth, and the History of Their Common Fate. And all of you out there should support your local bookstore. Most of them are closed, but so many of them are available online. And if yeah, you don't... I keep making this point that people, people are told, well, now you have to get books online, and they think Amazon is the only place to get them, and they forget that bookstores like yours have very efficient online services. Absolutely. In fact, we're going to have signed copies of your book as soon as we get the book plates uh, from you, maybe a few weeks. Book plates are really nice. They designed something really nice. Oh, did they? That's great. But also, I need to tell everybody, there's another wonderful alternative. If you don't have a local bookseller, there's something called Bookshop. Mark, I don't know if you know about it, but Bookshop is an amazing alternative to Amazon. And in fact, a portion of all the proceeds on Bookshop go to independent bookstores, which is a very cool thing. So um, there's lots of alternatives to that uh, other place. Um, right. I mean, we gotta, we got to pull this together so that, um, you know, when this is over, we're still here. Because, I mean, you guys, you got to pay your rent. Even though yeah. you have no business, you're closed down, but you're still, you still have expenses. And uh, I just hope that everybody can make it through. Thank you for that, Mark. And, and booksellers everywhere, you know, love you. And, you know, I think so many of us put our kids through preschool when COD came out that uh, we just are indebted to you for all the great work that you do. So thanks. Thank you for being on The Literary Life. It's always good to speak with you, and it's good to see you. And we should have these Zoom meetings, like, once every couple of weeks anyway. What do you think? Well, we should, but, you know, forget this uh, this is going to end, and I'll go down to Miami, and we can have lunch together. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Thank you. Everybody's been listening. You've been listening to Mark Kurlansky on The Literary Life, and his new book is called Salmon. 